Well, before we open God's word this morning, let's pray once more. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord, our Savior, our King, our hope, our righteousness, our very life, your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we open your word now, we do so with expectation to hear from you. We know, Lord, that you sound forth. You speak to us through your word. And so we ask now that you would graciously, by your Holy Spirit, incline our hearts to your heart. That you would remove the noise, the worries, the distractions, the temptations, Lord. That you would give us a focus and an affection for you. We ask that our eyes would be open, that we would see your glory, God, in your word. That we would see something of your excellencies. That you would unite our hearts corporately as a family in Christ to fear and rejoice in your name. Lord, we come this morning as men and women that are in need. In need, and that need can be satisfied by your steadfast love given to us through Christ. So satisfy us, Lord. Lead us into truth. Pull out the lies that have, have burrowed their way into our hearts. Give us a Godward focus in a man-centered world. Help us to live for the kingdom of God. May the words of my mouth now be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the most important characteristics of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is also perhaps the most neglected characteristic, and that's prayer. Disciples of Christ are people who pray. However, if you were just to think perhaps on your experience in the churches you've been a part of and how they, how they approach discipleship, you would see that there's a strong focus on men and women being doctrinally grounded. Biblically literate. We seek to make sure that disciples of Christ are missionally engaged. We make sure to tell our disciples that they are seeking any and every opportunity to engage in hospitality, helping outsiders feel like insiders. And there is no good disciple who doesn't serve in the local church. So we got to make sure to get them serving. We need to get them plugged into a small group. All good things. But what about prayer? Why has prayer not become a central focus of how churches go about building up disciples of Christ? 
Why is something that is so central to our faith a footnote in most discipleship programs and processes? How is it that as disciples of Christ, we will affirm prayer is crucially important, but then we just assume, well, everybody prays, so we don't really have to instruct in that area. We've been looking at what it means to be a disciple. And in a few weeks, we will unpack a, a more robust definition of a disciple. But at the bare minimum, we've seen a disciple is someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is true, then we must be men and women who pray because Jesus was a man of prayer. We see that Jesus would often just get away, not to have a day off, not to have some me time, not to indulge his favorite hobby, but he would often just get away to pray. Listen to Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. After he had sent the crowds away, he'd been busy doing the work of ministry. He's tired. Maybe he should just relax for a little bit. But Jesus gets away to pray. In Mark chapter 6, you see this. Mark chapter 6, verse 46. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. We see it in Luke's gospel also in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. But he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. Jesus is a man of prayer. Jesus would also wake up early in the morning to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. Our Lord began his day in communion with the Father. Before choosing the 12 disciples, Jesus got away to pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it happened that at this time he went off to a mountain to pray, and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples to him and chose the 12, whom he also named as apostles. Jesus didn't make big decisions without seeking the face and the will of his father in heaven in prayer. On the eve of his crucifixion, in that dark night of the soul, before the guards would come and take him away. He's praying. 
Matthew chapter 26. Verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he spends that night in prayer. And as Jesus hung on the cross, body broken, blood pouring forth, enduring the penalty for sinners, what does Christ do on the cross? He prays. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, we see here, we read here, Jesus praying scripture. It's a reference to Psalm 22. Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, you see how that prayer makes total sense. Jesus was a man of prayer. Therefore, if you and I are to be true disciples of Christ, then you and I must be men and women of prayer. It's not optional. However, if we're going to be men and women of prayer, then we must know how to pray. So I'm curious, let me ask this question. How did you learn to pray? Did someone teach you how to pray? Or, as is the case for most of us, did you just kind of pick it up along the way hearing people pray? You observed other people praying. I think that's how I do it. And that's how you learned. What's interesting is that neither the disciples nor Jesus took that approach. The disciples themselves themselves asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Listen to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Interestingly, John the Baptist, it seems to be part of the tradition to be taught to pray. The disciples, Jesus teaches to preach, teach us to, to cast out demons, teach us, no, teach us to pray. They recognize that they need that. And in our text this morning, which would be Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we see that Jesus himself instructs his disciples how to pray. Now, this message will be the first of two messages. Um, we had to break this up into two. And we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, it's the Lord's Prayer. Now, many commentators agree that while this is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, it's a little misleading. It'd be better suited to be called the Disciples' Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is praying to his father. So we can look at the Lord's prayer as the disciples prayer, because this is the, this is the manner in which Christ says we are to pray. 
So Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 read as follows. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That'll be our text this morning. What we're going to see is the disciples of Christ must be taught how to pray and then must give themselves to praying. Now, a quick word before we unpack um, these two verses. When Jesus taught his disciples and us by extension how to pray, he is not saying memorize this prayer and recite it verbatim. Notice he says, pray in this way, not pray this prayer. Jesus did not want his disciples to fall into the pattern of some vain, empty repetition that would become heartless. Listen to verse 7 in Matthew chapter 6, and we understand that. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So we see Jesus is actually teaching them to pray in this way to avoid the idea of just kind of repetitious reciting of words. And if it was to be prayed verbatim, it would stand to reason that it would be recorded more than once, that this is something we'd see the apostles teaching as well, but we don't. So Jesus is showing us, I guess, themes that should mark our prayer, not something to be memorized. And what's so important for us to realize is that as we look at the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, to pray this prayer in the way that Jesus teaches is for us to pray the very things that Jesus himself prioritizes. So our first point We only have one point this morning. Our only point this morning is God's greatness. Verses 9 and 10 are God's greatness. I'll tip my hat a little bit next week. 11 through 13, we'll see man's needs. But we're going to, we start this prayer by unpacking it by seeing the greatness of God. Notice he begins here. Pray that in this way, our Father who is in heaven. We need to stop at the very first word, our. Jesus didn't say my father. He said our father. Think about this. As you pray this prayer, as the disciples were there being taught this by Jesus, he is saying that my father in heaven is now your father. The father that I have had perfect Love and fellowship with from all eternity, he's your father also. Our. He's saying you're part, Jesus is saying you're part of the family. You are in God's family. You're not saying God, Jesus is father. No, our father. Jesus is saying that you are his family, that he is your elder brother. 
Jesus is also saying when we pray our father in heaven, that you and I are family because you and I share the same father in heaven. This prayer from its very first word shows the communal, familial nature of prayer. We have a tendency to view our prayer life as something that is private. And it is. Prayer is a very personal and a private thing. But prayer is also something that is communal. It's something that we do together. Our Father tells us right here, that first word, our, tells us that prayer is something that ought to take place when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are gathered together. Not just for our corporate worship services on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Not just on Wednesday nights when we gather prayer weekly. But we need to make it a habit of understanding if the prayer is our, then as we gather together in homes and coffee shops, going for walks around the neighborhood, we should pray together because we share a father in heaven. That second word now is father. Our father. You know, we are so accustomed to praying and calling God father. We're very accustomed to it. From the very first breath we take as believers, we're taught this. And as a result, we end up missing the radical nature of what is being said here. In Jesus' time, good Jewish men and women would not refer to God as Father. Adonai, Elohim, but they wouldn't say Father. And so when Jesus is, as a matter of fact, as Jesus in his ministry refers to God as Father, this is one of the things. Who does he think he is that he can refer to, his, to God as his Father? And so Jesus is actually inviting now, commanding, teaching, instructing his disciples to enter into this radical form of communication with God. He is not simply the sovereign creator of the universe. He's your father and mine. And in so doing, what makes it so radical is that he's saying now that you as a fallen man, you as a fallen woman can have a true, personal, intimate relationship with the thrice holy God of the universe. The one who upholds the stars, the one who allows you to draw breath into your lungs, you get to call him father. The highest authority over all things, you get to call Father. I genuinely hope, brothers and sisters, that your heart never grows dull to that reality. For you and I to be able to call God our Father is a richer blessing than anything we could receive in this life. Because we have no right to approach God at all, let alone to call him father. 
But true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they come to prayer, get the privilege to lift up their eyes and lift up their voices and say, our father. Greater than all the riches in the world is for sinners to become saints and saints to become sons and daughters. They get to call God father. So the prayer goes on, our father who is in heaven. And so while we do get to address God intimately, we are never to lose sight of the greatness of God and the authority of God. This is where the second part there is, who is in heaven reminds us. He is in heaven. He is the reminding. He is the great sovereign who created the cosmos. He is the great God in heaven who keeps every meteor on its current flight path. He is the God in heaven who gives life to every blade of grass outside. Listen to Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or Psalm 29, verse 6. Sorry, Psalm 29, verse 9. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Or Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 5. Nahum 1, 5. The mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. That is all true because he is not simply our father, but he is the God who is in heaven. You see the tension here. He is great. He is sovereign. He has authority and might. And we get to call him father. It is a privilege we, deserve, we don't deserve. Now, when he says our father who is in heaven, we need to make sure when Jesus is speaking of heaven, he's not talking about a geographical location. You can't go into Google Maps and find the grid coordinates for heaven. Heaven isn't just somewhere that you just, if I go vertical enough above the clouds into, the, into, into space and just keep going up, I'm going to pierce heaven. That's not what is meant. Heaven is, is the realm which God resides in, where he lives, his abode. And it's kind of hard for us to say really more than that because none of us have ever been there. But the Bible does tell us that God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere all the time. The scriptures tell us that God is near to those who call upon him. The Bible says to draw near to God. And so there is a sense in which God is in heaven, but yet being in heaven, he's still near to us. How, is that, how does that work? So perhaps a good way to understand it 
is when we say our father, our, the God is in heaven, our father in heaven, it isn't so much that God is in a different place than we are, but more in a different realm, a different dimension than we are. It's hard to understand. I haven't been there, but there is a sense in which he is in the same location as us, but in a different almost dimension or realm than us. And that's all we can say about that. It's, it's mysterious. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first petition. This is the first petition here. Hallowed be your name. To be hallowed, the word hallowed, it means may God be regarded as holy. May God be upheld as holy. May God be revered as God. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 9. Holy and fearsome is his name. Or Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. We see the angels singing to one another. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy, and we desire for God to be seen, to be recognized, to be spoken of, to be upheld, to be displayed as such. To be holy also means that God is is set apart. He's unlike you and me. He's morally perfect and upright. Because God is unlike any of us, this is why when they, Moses says, who should I tell them you are? He says, I am who I am. Because there is no reference point of comparison for God. And so the fact that you and I are to pray for the name of God to be regarded as holy, and that that is the first petition in this prayer that Jesus gives us, should really set the tone for our prayer life. Jesus is saying, when you pray, the first thing that you should be praying is for God's name to ring out in all its holiness. Which means our prayers are really should be shaped by who God is and not our wants. Now, when he says, hallowed be your name, In the Bible, to speak of God's name isn't the way we think of name. To speak of God's name is meaning a reference to his character, to all that he is. So hallowed be your name is a cry for all people to recognize the one true God. To recognize that he is set apart from everything else that exists. To see that he alone is God. How This is why we are told never to make images 
that try to reflect who God is because we can't. Anything you were to create to try to represent God would fall incredibly short because he is holy. He is set apart. He alone is God. Hallowed be his name. One of the most powerful passages in our entire Bible regarding the name of God is found in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, there's an interaction between God and Moses. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses cried out to God and said this. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God answers, and in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, we read the answer. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of our fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is the name of God. It is, it is a summary of his character. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives us also a, a powerful and beautiful description of the, of the character of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, First Timothy chapter 6, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal might. This is the character of God. This is who he is. And so we say, hallowed be your name. We're saying we want the character of God to be on full display in all areas of life. Our culture spits on the name of God at every turn. Can't put on a TV show without seeing the name of God taken in vain, blasphemed. The name of God, the one who gives breath, is used as a curse word, is used as a point of joke and, and mockery. The culture spits on the name of God with their words and their deeds all the time. And I think one of the saddest realities for all of us as followers of Christ is that we've become so used to it, we don't even bat an eye. I watched movies and TV shows where the Lord's name's taken in vain, and I've grown so desensitized that it doesn't grieve me as it ought. As a target, there was a shirt for kids that said OMG for little kids. 
the world spits on the name of God, on the character of God. Newscasters now. Tragedy happens. Oh, where was your God? Was he too busy? That's calling the character of God into question that is spitting on his name. And so my prayer is that you and I would be disciples who are continuously striving to conduct ourselves in a manner that his name would be hallowed in us and everything that we think, say, do, and desire. I'm not there. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm striving to grow in this. And I pray you are as well. I want to be able to say what King David said in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, verse 8, he says, I have set Yahweh continually before me. When you set Yahweh, when you set God, when you set your father continuously before you, you will hallow his name. But if God is not continuously before you, you will spit on his name. Because you'll forget his name. And so the first petition here in the Lord's Prayer, the first entry point into praying is to pray for God's name to pray for his name to be hallowed in your life, in your home, in your church, in your community, in your town, in your state, in your nation, and in the world. Which leads perfectly into the next petition. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Again, when Jesus is talking of the kingdom here, we have to realize he's not talking about a physical territory. Rather, what Jesus is talking about here, the word, the word for kingdom used here in the original language, it's speaking more to the sovereign rule of God. And so in one sense, Jesus is talking about the kingdom in an, in an eschatological, in, a, in an end times manner. Your kingdom come. We want the kingdom to come. We want that time when sin and evil will be no more to come here and now. Now, I got to be clear. I'm not saying that God is not sovereign over all things right now. He absolutely is. However, if you, as you read through the New Testament and you see how kingdom is being used, we see it's used almost in two ways. It's used in two ways. It's pointing to that coming day when Satan will be fully defeated and sin will be no more. But it's also used in the present ruling and reigning of Christ in the hearts of his people, which is the church. And so as we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying two things. We're praying for that coming consummation, that day where he will tread sin and Satan underfoot and his people will live with him in perfect holiness and righteousness. We're also praying for the rule and reign of Christ and his people to be ever advancing, ever growing. And so we live in this, this already not yet tension. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully consummated yet. And we live in a world 
currently that God is ruling and reigning. He is sovereign, but God, there's opposition to God and his people. Satan is at work. Matthew 12, verses 25 through 26. Jesus says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? There's a sense in which Satan has a kingdom here and now. Or 2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul writes, In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age, Satan, the one who is working in opposition to God. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. There's opposition. And so as we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the perfect, unhindered, unopposed rule and reign of Christ to come. For the gospel to advance and for the kingdom to grow. You have to stop. As you think about your prayer life, how often are you praying for the advance of the gospel, the growth of the kingdom, or do you just have your spiritual honey-do list? God, please do this for me and that for me and that for me. God, why aren't you doing this for me and that for me? This is why this prayer is so instructive, because it is God-centered from the start. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, It's all about God so far, not about us. Now, words matter, and words extremely matter as we we try to understand Scripture. And so he says here, your kingdom come. Notice we are asking God to act. Ultimately, we are praying for God to take action because it is only God alone who can and will establish his kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean you and I play no part. We do. God works in and through the church, but it is God establishing his kingdom. It is God bringing his kingdom. It is God advancing his kingdom. And he does so through the faithful ministry of the church. God works through his people. So as the church preaches the gospel, evangelizes, baptizes, and makes disciples, the kingdom advances. Brothers and sisters, we are to desire God's kingdom to come, not our own. And this is why the church is never to lock arms with the world. And this is one of the travesties of this whole relatively... I mean, old heresies, new teachings are just old heresies. The whole social justice push right now. This is one of the tragedies. 
Because the kingdom does not advance through social justice. The kingdom advances by sinners being saved by the blood of Christ. The kingdom doesn't come by moral reform, but by regeneration. You can't legislate righteousness. I'm not saying we're not to be involved in good causes. We are. But we should never think that good causes are advancing the kingdom. Soup kitchens are important, but they don't get anybody into heaven. We are to love our neighbor, and we are to tangibly help them in any way we can. But specific goods that we engage in are only temporary. They're only holding back sin and corruption so much. The chief task of the church, the one thing that the church, the bride of Christ can do that no one else can do, is preach the gospel and make disciples. The church alone can offer men and women the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a restored relationship with God who they can then call Father. No other organization can do that. No civic good can do that. No service projects can do that. That's why it's a crime to do service projects and do all these things, but to never open our mouths and preach Christ. Because all we've done is make people feel good, but we haven't advanced the kingdom. God advances his kingdom by the proclamation of the good news of his son. And the kingdom will fully come when Christ cracks the sky and returns. It's then that you and I will experience the fullness of it all. But in this life, I want you to be encouraged. The kingdom really is advancing. The kingdom really is increasing. It may not seem like it at times, but it is. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 in this parable of the mustard seed. Matthew 13 verses 31 through 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom is advancing. To quote my favorite story, Aslan is on the move. But with that being said, you and I cannot, with any integrity, pray for God's kingdom to come if we're too busy building our own. For God's kingdom to advance, we have to let go of the kingdoms that we are wanting to build for ourselves. We have to be willing to forego every pursuit and pleasure for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So I have to ask the question and ask yourself, do you really want Jesus to return? Or do we just like the idea of it? How about today? Would you really want Jesus to return today? How about right now? How about if you just 
boom, cracks the sky. We hear the trumpet blast right now. Or do you find a, a conflict within your heart? Because there's still things you want to do and experience. Jesus, how you come back in six months once I get a couple of these things I really want to do? If we're going to pray with integrity, with honesty, your kingdom come, then we have to really just sever the ties that we have to this world. I'm not saying it's wrong to desire and want to do good things and experience great things. This world is full of the goodness of God. But if you would ever wish to delay the kingdom of God coming in its fullness so you can enjoy these things, then we have things to repent of. How we answer the question, do we really want Jesus to return, really shows us how devoted our heart is to Christ and desirous of him. And the final petition here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we speak of God's will, we have to distinguish because there is God's sovereign will and there's God's revealed will. God's sovereign will is those things that God has decreed and determined. We're often unaware of them, but they're happening. God has decreed and determined all things to happen at all times. Joseph being sold into slavery was God's sovereign will. Genesis 50, verse 20, we see Joseph say that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We see his sovereign will working out there. God's revealed will are those things that God has chosen to reveal to us in his word and those things that he has commanded us to do and to not do. And so when Jesus is asked, telling us here, commanding us to pray, your will be done, he's not asking us to, to pray for God's sovereign will to be done because it's his sovereign will. It's going to be done. More, God is calling us here to pray regarding his revealed will. You ever think about the fact that in heaven, the will of God is experienced perfectly. It's free from sin and full of perfect righteousness. His will is being done with any, with no opposition. That is what we're praying here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may your, may the people on earth do your will perfectly free from sin. So let's ask another question. Do you truly desire for the revealed will of God to be obeyed by all? You may think yes, but actually all of us have to say no. And here's why, just one example. Yes, I want God's sovereign, I want God's revealed will, his moral will to be, to be upheld and obeyed by all. Then why do you bristle when someone holds you accountable for your sin? That's the revealed will of God to hold one another accountable. Do you see how much we need this prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life, in my heart as it is in heaven. If you and I are going to pray for God's will to be done on earth, then we must respond to obedience to God's will in our lives. 
We must die to our own will. Obedience to the will of God evidences that we are children of God. Listen to Mark 3.35. Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven requires obedience from God's children. And I have to warn that this is a dangerous prayer. This is probably the part that I spent the most time this week really chewing on. Your will be done on earth as it is heaven is costly. It's a dangerous prayer because listen to Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Praying for the will of God to be done can often have consequences that we don't enjoy. That was Luke twenty-two forty-two. Christ shows us here in his humanity that no matter what, we must submit our will to the will of God, no matter the cost. If not, we're simply praying empty words. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven also tells us that praying isn't changing God's will. Praying is changing our will in accordance with God's. And so we joyfully submit to his plans and purposes in our life. This prayer that Jesus is giving us, these first three petitions that we looked at, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, are so good because it's helping us stop being so self-focused and be God-focused. It's helping us desire his glory more than our comforts. It's helping us magnify his worth more than our wants. Brothers and sisters, we began this morning by looking at these first two words, our Father. For every single one of us that is truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you can lay hold of God as your Father. Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection is the reason that you and I can even be praying this prayer. The reason that any of us here have concern for God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will is because of the saving work of God's son on your behalf. This prayer, this disciple's prayer is a blood-bought prayer. The first three petitions are God are so are Godward focused. So I want you to ask yourself if God is the focus of your prayers, or do your prayers reflect that you're the focus of your prayers? Is God the focus of your prayers, or is, are you the focus of your prayers? And you're really just treating God like a genie. For you, prayer is more like rubbing the lamp. Like everything else in life, the grand focus and purpose is the glory of God. And these three, three, these three petitions are given to us in God's grace to take our eyes off ourselves, our circumstances, and our wants, and put them back where they rightly belong, on his name, his kingdom, and his will. 
hallowed? Is God's name being reflected as holy in your life? Kingdom, are you truly devoted to his kingdom or are you simply a weakened warrior who shows up Sunday mornings? You're not really engaged in praying and laboring for the advance of God's kingdom. His will, what's navigating the direction of your life? Is it your will or God's will? You have to consider those things. And as we pray this, look at this prayer, maybe the Holy Spirit's opened your eyes to the reality that God is not your father in heaven currently because you actually have never really trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. You've been a fan. And maybe you've used prayer as a genie bottle. Maybe you've seen that your life is not marked by a desire for God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. You've been living for your will to be done, not God's. If that's where you find yourself, that I honestly, genuinely ask you, plead with you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the eternal life that is offered. You do not need to die in your sins. You do not need to incur the wrath and judgment of God. Right here, right now, today, you could become a follower of Christ by faith and receive God as father. You can become part of his kingdom that will never end. And your life can be given purpose like you can never imagine because his will will become the navigating force of your life. All that is true and available to those who repent and believe. Church, this is a simple and spectacular prayer. This prayer reorients our hearts and minds Godward. And if you and I are to abide in Christ and be disciples of Christ, then we must pray as he has prescribed. And so let's close in prayer now. By praying this prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.